Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Like a band that's deep into its set and has already played too many songs that the drummer wrote, Boris Johnson's government is reaching in desperation for their earlier, more popular material. Abandoning the Northern Ireland Protocol will get the Tory mosh pit going, but will they enjoy the subsequent trade war? And nothing plays well with the Conservative faithful like some of Margaret Thatcher's greatest hits. What do we make of the government's latest wheeze to resurrect right to buy? Meanwhile, as yet another horrendous mass shooting in the US prompts a potential cross-party deal on gun control at last, we ask if the United States will ever break its paralysis on the right to bear arms. All that and more on The Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Before we start, we should say something about someone who has helped us with the podcasts and has been a good friend to many of us on the team. The journalist Dom Phillips, who disappeared in the Amazon with his companion, the campaigner Bruno Pereira. As we were preparing the podcast, the news came through that two bodies had been discovered. I knew Dom at Mixmag. He was great fun. He was dedicated. He became a proper investigator on behalf of Indigenous people in the Amazon region. And the anger and sadness that they have shown proves the value and honesty of what Dom was doing. He did a great podcast on Bolsonaro for us uh, a couple of years ago. And we're going to put it out again this week so that you can hear Dom's passion and his knowledge and his good humour. There is only the very slimmest chance that we will see him again. There are confused messages coming out of Brazil at the moment. His family has accepted that hope of seeing him again has gone. I will miss him a lot, and so will many of the people on this team. It is a horrific story, and it shows how journalists are under threat around the world. When you kill journalists, you murder the truth, or at least any route to finding it. I can't say rest in peace, because what seems to have happened to Dom is not peaceful. But we will miss him, and we will remember him. OK, let's meet the panel. Uh, Yasmin Sahan is a staff writer on The Atlantic magazine. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. Um, we're talking about the targeting of journalists. You've just written a major piece about the killing in Janine of the Palestinian-American journalist and Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh. Uh, what, what is the state of any kind of investigation into this? Well, um, the biggest investigations that we've seen, seen so far have actually come from news organisations. Mm. So CNN... Um, as I'm sure you all saw last month, uh, published a pretty sweeping review of all the available evidence that we had, audio, video, you know, geolocating, things like that, um, all of which suggested, as CNN said, that Abu Akla was shot dead in a targeted attack by Israeli forces. And um, just over the weekend, the Washington Post published its own analysis of the audio visuals available. I um, mean, they came to the same conclusion that it seemed likely that an Israeli soldier in a convoy shot and killed Abu Akla. So 
those are really the only investigations that we have in terms of any sort of informal investigation. Um, the Israeli government has already said that it's not going to launch a criminal inquiry into her death, citing the fact that they don't have the bullet that killed her. That is held by the Palestinian Authority, which um, is refusing to hand it over to the Israelis because they don't trust the Israelis to conduct an investigation into her death. They effectively say they don't really have the track record to investigate themselves. Um, and that kind of leaves, a, leaves us at an impasse, frankly, where none of the governments that are responsible to Abu Akhla are going to investigate what happened to her. Yeah, I mean, the, the massive complexity of Israel-Palestine is, is one thing, but one of the things we ought to be able to hold on to is don't kill journalists. Yes, but I, I think it's worth noting here, just because I forgot to mention the last uh, government that does have a responsibility to Shireen, and it's the U.S. government. You mentioned mm. at the top, she's an American. I um, mean, the U.S. has not only the means, but the leverage here to force both sides to cooperate on an investigation. Um, and so far, the Biden administration, uh, despite calling for a thorough investigation and full accountability into her death, um, has so far declined to conduct an inquiry of its own, which is a shame because as I see it, the U.S. has not only the means but a responsibility to her to determine what's happened. There's precedent for the U.S. launching investigations when its journalists have been killed elsewhere. Um, I'm thinking, of course, of Daniel Pearl in Pakistan mm. years ago. Um, so, you know, I'm, th there is still time, I think, for the Biden administration to change their mind. President Biden will be going to the region, I think, next month. But, yeah, so far it's – we just marked, I think, the month since Shireen was killed – just over the weekend. Um, and I, I think it's high time that her family and loved ones got some peace. And I don't think they will until they've seen full accountability for whoever killed her. Also with us, it's former diplomat and Doomsday Watch host, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. On Tuesday, when this podcast comes out, the first deportations to Rwanda are now going to take place. The courts have given it um, the go-ahead. It looks like there's going to be no more than 11 and possibly as few as eight people on the first flight. Only 35% of people in the country support the policy anyway, according to a YouGov survey. Is this worth the government's while as policy, if not necessarily as what we kind of suspect it is, is flag-waving? I think it's policy. It's never had any validity. Um, if you think about the, the stated reason for this policy, it's supposed to act as a disincentive to people uh, crossing the channel in small boats. Now, if you think of the incredible risk to life of crossing the English Channel in a tiny boat, uh, it doesn't seem to be very clear that the, the remote risk of being flown to Rwanda is going to affect your calculations there. But obviously, it does work as a communications method. It, it's a way of Boris signalling to his backbench that he's getting serious on hard right policies and signalling to the people who approve of those things, which are part of the core Tory vote, that they want to take this stuff seriously. And rounding out the panel, it's Gavin Esler, former Chief North America correspondent and Newsnight presenter at the BBC. Hello, Gavin. Hello. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Are you all right? Yeah, very well. So... What does this Aaron Banks thing, losing his three-year libel case against Carol Cadwallader, what does it mean for these slap lawsuits, the, the, the ones that basically attempt to in, intimidate people into being silent? These lawsuits, particularly by people of great wealth, uh, and I'm thinking of some Russian oligarchs, trying to, in the case of Catherine Belton, who wrote a great book about Putin and uh, some of the cronies that surround him, 
uh, these are very intimidatory. They can be because, of course, people have the right to uh, defend their reputation. In the case of Putin, he hasn't got much of a reputation to defend. But what happens is that, in his case, the surrogates in the courts have engaged in these lawsuits, and it means that journalists, of course, have to be very careful. But this is beyond being very careful. This is saying we don't really think you should have a voice at all. So I think it's a good day for for British journalism. I don't know what the final implications may be, but certainly the idea that just because you've got a lot of money, you can actually, in various ways, buy yourself some kind of publicity or stop negative publicity. I hope that this will make some people think again. The elephant's pregnancy that was the government's plan to break international law and scrap the Northern Ireland Protocol finally came to term today, Monday. The government announced unilateral moves to remove checks on goods arriving into Northern Ireland from Great Britain that will stay there, and also a more limited role for the European Court of Justice. It's another round in the government's increasingly incoherent attempts to get back on track, which last week included a bout of Thatcherite cosplay in the form of the return to right to buy. Yasmin, I'm not going to inflict right to buy or British housing on on you. I'm going to go to Gavin instead. Uh, Let's start with the protocol. Um, The thing that stuck, stuck me, struck me really, was that it's as if Johnson's kind of been dangling a bit of meat in front of the angry dog for far too long now. So he's dropping it just before the angry dog starts to eat him. Is that fair? Well, I think uh, reality bites in the end. And, you know, Brexit has been based on slogans rather than uh, actually considering reality. And I don't think, honestly, that the people of Northern Ireland have ever entered Boris Johnson's consciousness, except as the, in terms of whatever votes he might get from the, from the Democratic Unionist Party. My take on this is the way to solve the Northern Ireland protocol problem is simply to extend it to the rest of the United Kingdom, to give us exactly (laughs) the same rights as the people of Northern Ireland. I've got 12 members of my family who signed the Ulster Covenant in 1912, so I know the unionist community fairly well. And uh, what, what they worry about is not the fact that actually Northern Ireland businesses are doing quite well out of this. That's that's kind of fine. But it is the sense that they are somehow different from the yes, rest of the United Kingdom. And uh, I know that Scottish whiskey exporters and Welsh lamb farmers and so on would be quite happy to have the Northern Ireland Protocol. What we have here is just more posturing from Boris Johnson. And unfortunately, it just makes us look by us, and I now mean the United Kingdom, just looks terrible in terms of the rest of the world. And, you know, he goes on about all kinds of things. But I remember the deaths of MPs, Ian Gow, Airy Neve, Anthony Berry, and, you know, the Brighton bombing where Margaret Thatcher was nearly killed. And we solved that problem, or at least Tony Blair and the Irish government and actually Bill Clinton did in the 1990s. And all this posturing for on behalf of the DUP, which is not even the biggest party in Northern Ireland anymore, unfortunately raises all kinds of spectres about the the past. And I just don't really know where it's going because I don't actually think that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has a clue either about Northern Ireland or about what he wants out of Brexit, except for short-time political gain for himself. Do you think it will be enough to buy off those those Conservative MPs, 41% of whom voted to get rid of him last week? And if you discount the payroll vote, the vote was an even stronger repudiation. Uh, no, because I think those who voted against Boris Johnson recognise that he's a liar and a 
uh, he just postures. And to be honest, I don't really care about the internal machinations of the Conservative Party. I do care very strongly about people in Northern Ireland whose livelihoods are just, you know, this is this is a prime minister who said the Irish border is no different from the border between, I think it was Camden and Westminster, where we, we've got different parking systems. And, you know, he just talks utter nonsense about it. And to move the Irish border which was not a problem uh, when uh, in 2016 into the middle of the Irish Sea, unthinkingly in a two or three hour meeting with Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach of Ireland, was uh, uh, just one of many acts of Boris Johnson's utter carelessness and thoughtlessness. And I, I have no idea where this is going to end. But I do think that actually uh, the only people who should be delighted about this are Sinn Féin because they have done very well in recent elections and it is making many people in Northern Ireland think, does Westminster really care about us? To which the answer in Boris Johnson's case is no. Well, according to the Times, and I'm quoting here, ministers have privately told the DUP they'll not push the bill through the House of Lords until the party has returned to government with Republicans. Doesn't that raise the question of, well, you know, the DUP joins government with Sinn Féin to get this bill through, presumably Sinn Féin would immediately leave government well, because they don't want this bill. <laughs> I, I Look, I mean, I, again, this is... Uh, you're asking me to decide who is who is going to blink first between the DUP and Boris Johnson. This is a, you know, the DUP have been in favour of Brexit and voted against every version of Brexit that has ever existed, including a no-deal Brexit. So, so we're dealing with two uh, kind of uh, uh, posturing uh, series of incompetencies. It reminds me of that, uh, what was it, Dr. Johnson, who said there's no way of setting the precedence between a louse and a flea. I mean, this is... <laughs> the, 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 I have no idea, as I say, where this is going to go. Um, and whether the DUP is forced into government with uh, Michelle O'Neill as the uh, First Minister of Northern Ireland, well, it just goes to show that Sinn Féin, for all the past that we all know about, about the IRA and so on, seem to have played a blinder in the past couple of years. And the DUP have been disastrous for unionism in Northern Ireland, as has Boris Johnson, incidentally. Quite interestingly, Chris Patton, Lord Patton, obviously a conservative, conservative peer, has said the problem is Boris Johnson is an English nationalist. Ian Paisley Jr., son of the, the great loyalist Ian Paisley, says... Boris Johnson is an English nationalist. This is an English nationalist government. He doesn't care about the other parts of the United Kingdom. Arthur, the European Commission is expected to kind of wearily relaunch its legal action against the UK. Didn't they be any way, in any way surprised by this, which has been in the post for months and in fact years, almost since the minute the supposedly unready deal was signed? No, I don't think they'll be surprised at all. I expect, though, they're still waiting to see if this is a real thing happening in real life as opposed to a thing happening in a sort of political debate. As you were just talking about there with the House of Lords, there's lots of reasons to believe that this uh, this new bill will never get anywhere near actual uh, statute. I should think they feel weary and uh, annoyed about this, but it doesn't necessarily change the situation on the ground in any way. The breaking of international law is usually criticised as, well, this is going to destroy our international reputation. Has that ship sailed, burned and sunk, do you think? Interestingly, we, we can certainly sink lower, but I wonder whether there are, there, there are two calculations going on here in terms of particularly the breaking of international law. Very plainly, one can say, well, when you're trying to hold Russia to international law standards, uh, it's not a great time to be breaking it. But equally... 
that that comparison rather breaks down because ultimately, you know, Britain isn't invading Ireland and carrying out massacres or, or not, not in the last three years. Didn't work out well. Yeah, we, we've already been there and done that. Yeah. Um, the other point here is to think about the rewards that you get by being a bad faith actor. And so what happens now is that Boris Johnson is constantly telling his supporters that it's the EU that's being unreasonable and it's Britain that has tried everything and, you know, they're forced into this difficult position. Which, if you think about it, is exactly what Putin said when he invaded Ukraine. It was his, it was the last option available to him. Now, everyone listening to this podcast will scratch their head at that and think, well, you know, it's, it's, he's clearly lying. But I think inside gammon brains, this sort of makes sense. The problem is the EU. It's, it's not us. Um, this is supposed to be reuniting the Conservative Party, this new uh, raft of last-minute um, late-term legislation. But loads of Tory MPs have popped up and said they're going to you know, openly vote against it. It's a funny way to unite a party, isn't it, by you know, driving away whatever is left of your sensible wing. Yes. Um, I suppose that's a calculation he's made that the... The insane wing are the one that he needs to depend on uh, because they're better organised and more likely to attack him. Well, speaking of uh, pleasing Conservative MPs, uh, the housing stuff, back to the Thatcher classic, greatest hits, Thatcher Gold FM in Blackpool, a god-awful place like Birmingham, according to his own junior minister, Heather Wheeler. Boris Johnson announced plans to extend the existing right-to-buy scheme to people on low incomes who rent their homes from housing associations. He also said that housing benefit could go towards mortgages. So good news for claimants there. No need to lay off the avocado on toast. Gavin, right to buy is a sacred cow of conservatism. Is it a bit late in the day for Johnson to suddenly invoke it? Well, it's tw- <laughs> 12 years of conservative governments. I think they own the housing crisis. There's no doubt that we have a terrible, terrible problem about what we do about housing, particularly for younger people trying to get on the housing market. We all know the story. I was looking at some of the figures today um, before we came on. So the average UK salary, according to HMRC in 2022, is £24,600. The average full-time salary, if you work full-time, is £31,000. The average price for a terraced house in England is £241,000, so eight times the full-time salary. And on £31,000, you can borrow £139,000. So the idea, the slogans and all this stuff, it's just, you know, if you believe this is going to solve the housing crisis, come walk with me over the garden bridge (laughs) that Boris Johnson never built. It's just another bit of nonsense. And the thing is, what is actually quite despicable about it, actually, is it saying yet again to people, we are in some way going to um, alleviate poverty, we're going to get people onto the housing ladder, we're going to do what Mrs. Thatcher did or tried to do. And it's just it is a yet another slogan in search of a policy. And I think it's it's a bit sad, really, that he's pulling all these rabbits out of a hat. I hope this means it's, it's his his uh, last hurrah, but we've been saying that for some months. Yeah, we, we can stack up an entire cupboard full of last hurrahs, Boris Johnson, can't we? The one that what stuck out to me on this was the idea that you can kind of transmute your housing benefit into a, a deposit. To claim benefits, you have to have less than £16,000 in savings. You've just demonstrated how that's nowhere near enough for a deposit to, to buy a house. I mean, it just, it's, it's self-contradictory on, on the face of it, isn't it? It takes one second. It does, absolutely. And also, we're talking about many people. Um, I've just walked recently 
uh, last weekend through the streets of a very prosperous south of England town and was handed out uh, a number of leaflets about the food banks and about the crisis in the food banks and about people who are on housing benefit and other things who cannot afford to cook because even if they have the food, they can't boil up the potatoes. So they want other different different types of food. Mm. I had a chat with some of the people from Trussell Trust. So it just seems so uh, disjointed that this is not what people on low incomes actually are thinking about right now when many of them are worried about what happens in October and November when the cold weather starts and we won't be able to afford our electricity bills and we don't don't want to get into debt. So this doesn't solve... This is a, a yet another slogan uh, which doesn't solve any of the problems that, that have been raised. I have a suspicion it all just began with benefits to bricks, which is a, like a perfectly vapid Johnson Zinger, and then built the rest of it all around that. You know, sounds great, gets the Tory faithful going, completely meaningless. Well, he's still writing. Uh, so he's still writing uh, uh, pieces for the Telegraph in his head. It seems to me these are not policies. These are just sort of eight hundred and fifty words that he can knock off uh, late one evening when he's finished doing other things. Yasmin. Um, is the British housing market as bad as America's or just awful in a different way? Well, I can't afford to pay rent in two different um, continents, so I actually don't know. I mean, no, what I know from my American colleagues is actually that the American housing market has just been so crazy in that demand has been high, prices have been high. And up until really recently, the number of houses just available has been mm. at its record lows. So I think in the U.S., you're only seeing the housing market just starting to peak. Anecdotally, I look at my friends on both sides of the Atlantic, um, all sort of in their 20s and 30s, white collar jobs, making decent money, admittedly living in cities where, you know, housing tends to be more expensive, but that's where their jobs are. Mm. And I can really only count a handful that own their own place or approaching anywhere near. And, And that's not even taking into account, you know, having help from families. The way that my friends and I talk about it is a matter of if we'll be able to buy, not when. Um, And I think that really just comes down to, I mean, sort of what we were discussing, um, the fact that, you know, at at the bottom line, you need a deposit to be able Mm -hmm. to to, to buy a house, uh, let alone finding an affordable one. But even just, you know, my partner and I, we're we're nowhere near probably, you know, I think we'll be renting, uh, if my landlord's listening to this, don't worry, we'll probably be (laughs) renting for for a, a while yet. But we were even just looking at things like stamp duty. Yeah, which would add another at least maybe ten grand at least onto what we would need to save for a deposit. So um, yeah, I mean, I think they're crazy in different ways. But as someone who lives in London, of course, I have the mm. the best experience, the yeah. experience knowledge here. Well, um, Johnson did say we have a ludicrous situation whereby plenty of younger people could afford to make monthly mortgage payments. They're earning enough to cover astronomical rent bills. But the ever-spiralling price of a house or flat has so inflated deposit requirements that saving even just 10% is a wholly unrealistic proposition for them. And I have to say, I mean, much as I despise him, that is fair. It is an advance on saying, stop having frothy coffee every morning and you you too could own a semi in the suburbs. (laughs) No, he's exactly right. I think that that is fair. I mean, you you only have to look at the data to kind of see how that's sort of appearing in in both countries. I looked at, um, you know, I think it's 22.5% of people between the ages of 25 and 34 have a mortgage in the UK. Mm. Um, I could imagine that number just getting smaller as the years go on. In the US, comparatively, it's 37% under the age of 35. So, I mean, these aren't huge numbers. And I'm sure when you go into the cities, it's it's even worse. I mean, effectively, it would require going somewhere 
where you could afford to buy a place, but the jobs aren't always necessarily there that young people have. But yeah, I mean, I think that description that he's he's given is um and and frankly, <laughs> I think I could give up frothy coffees, avocado toasts, and everything, and that still wouldn't get me any closer to being able to afford. Um, yeah. a place here. You'd be living in some kind of weird avocado gingerbread house wouldn't you, <laughs> with kind of coffee painted on the walls. Arthur, I'm going to ask you the same question um, about the earlier one. Is is this enough to shut up the complaining Conservative MPs and make them think that uh, Boz is back on course and things like that, they like to say like that? I think it might actually be, from a purely political perspective, a fairly smart move because as both Gavin and Yasmin have, have outlined, it's impossible to see this resulting in more people getting housing. But it is an example of the government apparently trying to do something about housing. And that seems like the, the, the perfect outcome, because most Conservative voters already have houses. They live in places where they don't want more houses built. And in fact, if we do that, it might reduce the value of their houses. So if you look as though you're trying to help, but don't actually change the underlying mechanics of the market. That seems advantageous. And lots of Conservative voters don't actually see that much of a problem because they themselves can leave a nest egg to their kids. Absolutely. So, and with the thinking that, well, if I can do it, why can't everybody else do it? Indeed. How hard can it be? How hard can it be? Bloody impossible. Mm. Uh, the Lib Dem Deputy Leader Daisy Cooper called the plan hot air and waffle. Um, given all of the other appalling things going on in the cost of living crisis, which the government is paying terrible, terrible price in popularity. Is it a bit tone deaf to go with this? There's reason to believe that some of this is just a desperate Boris Johnson trying to come up with clever wheezes, um, just as, you know, the flight to Rwanda, the big announcement on housing. It's hard to believe it was only this time last week that he lost uh, the majority of his backbench in one of the worst uh, no-confidence vote results um, seen in sort of recent Tory history. So he's got to come up with stuff, uh, but he's not somebody who is has the patience or uh, he, he doesn't have the character really to get into the details of, of thinking about actual solutions. Mm. So in, in a way, it's not surprising that it's rubbish, is it? No, we're used to it. We used to the stream of rubbish. I mean, I'm old enough to remember last time around, I was just, was just about conscious of what was happening with the right to buy. And under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s were 5.5 million affordable homes. Now there are 4.2 million. And obviously the, pro- the population has changed a little bit yes. since then. Gove has apparently committed to one-for-one one replacement uh, of the houses that are sold, but there's no budgetary detail. Yeah. So every indication that actually this is, this is policy vaporware. In the unlikely event that they start selling off these homes, which let's not forget, David Cameron already announced this policy years ago. It Mm. never happened. It's clear that they won't replace them. It's also clear that Gove was really uh, uncomfortable about this aspect of of the announcement because whilst I've got no particular enthusiasm for Michael Gove, he's a little bit closer to the reality-based community. They now have to say there's going to be a one-for-one replacement because otherwise it looks completely irresponsible. These are all sort of fictions, really. They're just they're different varieties of what Gavin was talking about. It's, you know, it's different varieties of the newspaper column. Well, we might be bending down the housing market or maybe on the road to nowhere to a rental future. Our colleague Ros Taylor spoke to the Eyes housing correspondent, Vicky Spratt, about her book Tenants and all the issues surrounding renting. Right to buy is certainly a big part of the buy-to-let problem picture. Because what's happened is lots of properties that were sold off through right to buy, which for anyone who doesn't know, is a policy that was introduced under Margaret Thatcher, but which was actually initially a Labour idea. Let's let's not forget that allows council tenants to buy their home 
at a discount on market rate, right? Like very, very simple idea. And a lot of those homes have since been sold on and bought by landlords who now rent out former social homes on the private market at an inflated rate, some of which are being rented back to people on housing benefit who would have once lived in social housing. I mean, this has been described as one of the greatest acts of privatization this country has ever seen. I think I would agree with that. But right to buy isn't the only factor here. In the 90s, well, in the 80s and 90s, two things happened. Firstly, mortgage lending was expanded. It, it, you know, it became easier to get financed to buy a home. We had the big bang, deregulation of the city, and and mortgage lending became, you know, an increasingly important driver of our economy. And then the buy to let landlord mortgage was introduced, and it became more widespread. And banks quite liked lending to landlords because they feel like a safer bet than a first time buyer, for instance, because generally speaking, they've got more money and they're doing it to make a profit. So that feels like a safer bet for banks than someone who maybe doesn't have a huge deposit and is is buying a home that they're going to live in, not as a business opportunity. I think it's really important to to look at the role that banking and finance has, has played here too. The government now wants to extend that right to buy to housing association tenants. Is that just going to cut the amount of social housing available even further? Oh, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with this extension of right to buy as we speak. So I'll tell you what I know, which is that I've spoken to the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, formerly the Ministry of Housing. That department changes its name more often than I, as a housing journalist, can keep up with. Um, I've been trying to talk to them this morning and they can't really give me any information about whether this policy is happening, whether it's been costed up, what the plan is. I've spoken to the cabinet office who told me to speak to number 10, who told me they didn't have any information. So is Right to Buy about to be extended to housing association tenants? Allegedly, but I can't get hold of any detail on this or what it would look like. And I think it would be quite difficult to do for several reasons, though not impossible. Firstly, housing associations, unlike councils, are not local bodies. They're private businesses. So if you're going to allow their housing stock, their social housing stock to be sold off at a discount on market rates, I don't know what like the legal implications of that would be or even how they're going to be compensated. So whether, whether this can happen, I'd be very, very interested to know. I think it's telling that nobody in the government right now can give me any information in answer to those questions. Although they could come later in the week. So let's wait and see. At this point in time, speaking to you, I have asked to see that information and I have not been given it. We know that right to buy is a very popular policy. That's why Thatcher was so keen on it, because anything that creates homeowners encourages people to invoke conservative because you've got assets to conserve, you're more likely to vote conservatively, right? And uh, I think it was George Osborne who famously famously said that social housing just creates Labour voters. Well, that's all you need to know about why, if you were in trouble as the Prime Minister, you might want to expand right to buy. Whether it can work in practice remains to be seen. And then in answer to your original question, would it be a problem? Yeah, I think objectively, based on the experts I've spoken to this morning, uh, it would be a disaster because as I mentioned before, social housing waiting lists are are really, really, really long. We don't have enough social housing. So any policy that gets rid of what we do have without replacing it is only going to exacerbate the housing crisis. 
It is just about possible that after the horror of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, when 19 children and two adults were murdered, some tentative cross-party gun control legislation could become possible in the United States. The group of senators proposing fairly timid action includes 10 Republicans, so it has a chance of passing into law as the first federal action on gun safety in some 26 years. There have been 309 mass shootings and almost 20,000 gun deaths in the US this year alone so far. So why can't America fix its gun problem? Yasmin, this is the kind of stupid question that British people ask, isn't it? Why can't you just fix it? Firstly, what's in this bipartisan proposal? Is there any reason to be optimistic, do you think? The fact that you have 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats coming together to propose anything, I think, is can be considered a breakthrough. And especially considering, as you just said, it's been three decades since we've seen anything like this. It's long overdue. The proposed deal includes um, changes to things like background check systems, um, includes money to incentivize um, state-level red flag laws, which are effectively would, would mean the government providing resources to states to effectively ensure that deadly weapons are kept out of the hands of people who are determined by courts to, you know, be a danger to themselves mm-hmm. or others if they had them. Um, there's mental health funding, school security funding. These both sounds like things that the Republicans would be pushing for in particular. What the steel doesn't does not include is raising the age to purchase semi-automatic weapons to 21, mm-hmm. um, an assault weapons ban, of course, which is something that I'm sure Democrats would have wanted to see in that, um, and, and other more far-reaching gun restrictions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you noted, it's it's not everything. But it is a little bit. And I think it's seen as movement in an area where we really haven't seen any movement for so long. I mean, as you know, we look at it from this side of the Atlantic just with confusion and horror. And, you know, the Constitution is full of amendments. Why is the Second Amendment so sacred? This is a question that I've asked myself, too, because even though I'm you know, a born and bred American and a product of a country that, as you said, has just the the stats are just really depressing. Um, I also am I'm a product of a state, California, which relative to the rest of the country per population actually is probably one of the safest mm. places to be, um, both because of just well, predominantly, I think, because of the, the gun control laws that do exist. But w- when it comes to the sacrosanct notion of the Second Amendment, I thought my colleague Adam Serwer actually worded it best. Um, and, and he basically says that um, this notion of kind of the Second Amendment being a bulwark against tyranny, the last stop between between citizens, um, you know, being under the boot of government, that this was an idea that was actually pushed by gun rights advocates in the 90s. So it isn't something that necessarily dates back to mm. to our nation's founding. But it's an interpretation that's clearly taken hold, because I think if you talk to gun-supporting Americans today about why they want to have a gun, it's predominantly because they want to protect themselves against people who they think are going to harm them or the government. They want to, you mm. know, they, they, they kind of see the government taking their arms as sort of the first step in the government then oppressing them. So um, I think that's – and it's hard, I think, to translate that to other countries to help Mm. explain, in part because you just look at the United States and you think, do you really think that's going to happen? But yeah, I mean, that seems to be the prevailing logic. I always remember the episode of The Simpsons where Homer tells Bart, if we didn't have guns, King George could march in here right now and take all your stuff. And I'm like – could if he wasn't dead. <laughs> and King George's police don't even carry guns. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't have him here, yeah. Um, the, I mean, there's numerous insane details on this, but the absolute stonewall refusal to do anything about assault weapons, the weapons that are used 
to conduct mass shootings. You know, there is not a lot of point taking an assault weapon on a on a duck hunt unless you really like duck pate. You know, it's like this we find impossible to understand. Why not things like that? You can you can maintain a right to bear arms without military weaponry in your hometown. What is it that makes you know the kind of I'm not going to say the gun lobby the the kind of the the gun opinion base so affixed to that? I wish I had the answer. I have, mm. I'm like I'm shaking my head as you're speaking. I, I have no idea. And this is a question, right? That's asked of America every single time yeah. this happens. No, and you know, frankly, I don't even know that you know my my fellow Americans who are who support gun rights, who own guns, Republicans. I don't necessarily know that they'd have an answer for you either, mm. except for perhaps that they think, oh well, you know, if if tyranny is going to come upon me, I, I want something more than like you know. I don't even know how to – I'm yeah. so ill-acquainted with guns. I don't even know how to explain, like, the differences between them. But I want one that's going to cause damage versus one that's, um, yeah, maybe just, mm. you know, to defend your to defend yourself that you maybe kind of keep on your nightstand or something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the constitutional mechanics of passing gun legislation and why, unlike the prime minister of Britain, Biden can't simply set in motion, uh, you know, a legislative program to impose controls? quite simply because he doesn't have the votes. I mean, yes, mm. the Democrats are in power. Yes, they have control of both houses of Congress ostensibly. However, they do not have the votes to pass this. The House did pass, um, I think, a gun reform package recently, but they do not have the votes to get it through the Senate. What's promising about this bill that's been proposed is that by having 10 Republican lawmakers already signed on to it, they've proven that they can overcome the filibuster in the Senate, mm-hmm. um, which, as, as I'm sure our listeners know, is kind of <laughs> where, where bills go to die, where they're just the debate is extended forever. Um, so at the very least, this sort of kind of watered down, which I, I should mention, despite the fact that it isn't going the full way, advocates for gun control have been praising this package. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's been getting, I mean, so far, and I think we'll obviously get more details as it comes out, but it's getting a, a lot of praise. So I, I don't say that this is necessarily something that people are sort of been like, oh, well, this sucks. Like, no, yeah. I think people are quite cheered by it. Um, so uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, he didn't informally formally endorse the deal. However, he did offer encouragement to its negotiators. So there is every chance that this can pass. I think this isn't so clear cut as a lot of Americans want gun control. Why can't mm. their lawmakers just do it? I think this actually is a divisive issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you're going to need to really fundamentally shift the Republican, Republicans on this for them to go through. And, and the Democrats... I mean, obviously, as as I think we're anticipating with the midterms are not going to retain a lot of the whatever control they do have is not going to be retained for a long time. So this actually might be their first and only opportunity yeah. to do this for a while. And it's interesting that four of the 10 Republicans are retiring. So they're not mm. going to face election and the other six aren't on the ballot in the midterms. So it's like, you know, they are at least protected from the full force of public opinion on this. Yeah, they don't need the NRA's support after yeah. this once they're gone. Yeah. So yeah. Gavin, you were North America correspondent for a long, long time. What did you discover about the gun culture in the United States at the time? I love living in the United States, but I moved there from Northern Ireland. And uh, I have to say that in the 90s, uh, you, the statistics were you were more likely to die from uh, gunfire in Washington, D.C., where I lived, than in Belfast, because the, the crack cocaine wars were going on. There were shootings uh, uh, a lot of the time and so on. Um, and I remember... remember uh, parking my car at the parking lot 
And the guy next to me came in from Virginia and he had a bumper sticker which said, and I quote, an armed society is a polite society. And I thought, oh, God, you've never been in Beirut, have you, pal? Um, <laughs> or indeed Britain, and, where we're relatively polite and we haven't got guns. In fact, it's kind of guns. the only thing anybody knows about us. <laughs> we're still polite. And and then I, I I was fascinated by it. And I've got friends who live in uh, in Arizona. And I think if I lived in a rural area of eastern Arizona and the mountains, I, I would undoubtedly have a gun. I'm sure I would. Um but then the, the, I, I remember also filming on a gun range in Houston, Texas. And next to me, there was a, it was a young woman who was wearing hospital blues and she was blasting away with a thing called a Ladysmith, which is a Smith and, Smith and Wesson revolver, a small one. And I, I started to talk to her and she, she said, yeah, I work in the ER room of the local hospital. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, do you, and what do you mostly treat there? And she said, well, gunshot wounds and car crashes and i said but you're you're firing this gun on a gun range do you not see that that's um maybe kind of a bit odd or at least it is odd if you're british and she said perfectly reasonably it struck me she said you know what we get a lot of shootings even in hospitals in the united states because what happens is somebody in some gang gets shot by the other gang and uh, they take the guy to hospital and then the other gang know that that's where all his mates are going to be, so they attack in the hospital. And I just couldn't get my head around it. She said, I've got this for my protection. Now, now that's an anecdote. It's not a statistic. But it is a completely different mindset. And Yasmin is right. I mean, the core of it is a degree of fear. And the one thing I couldn't get into my head was the people I knew who were decent law-abiding American citizens who had guns were frightened of other American citizens who had guns. And if you said to them, well, why don't you take so many of the guns out of the equation? You wouldn't be so frightened. You were met with a blank stare. So that is that to me is the problem. It's a constitutional problem, but it's also a problem of fear. And you could begin with assault rifles. That might be a good good place to start. Arthur, do you think we in Britain are just being naive in imagining that there's a solution to this rather than an incredibly long, slow, incremental change? Just as an observer of of US politics, no particular expert on on gun rights, it seems that you can look at a a range of long-running challenges in, in American politics that are completely stuck whether you're talking about, you know, the the upcoming uh, crisis over abortion rights, clearly the gun rights issue, where it it seems that the the, the balance in the politics is such that the, the country, as Yasmin was saying, that you know, President Biden might have the title of president, but he doesn't actually have any powers really. Mm-hmm. I don't have an idea of how it could be uh, changed, other than through uh, very sadly when the really awful mass shootings happen, then some people may change their opinion very slightly for a certain amount of time. The weird irony is that I was looking at kind of numbers on guns and apparently gun sales actually rise after mass shootings yeah. due to fears that there's going yeah. to be gun legislation, which there of course never is, um, at least not in the last few decades. So it's it's this kind of horrible spiral, mm, right? And yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, if you look at the firearm industry and the NRA in particular, it's cheerleader. There is no real incentive to do anything to change it because, you know, as long as it just keeps chugging along. You would think that potentially, to, to Arthur's point, these big moments come through and maybe cause people to to think differently. But I mean, we've just had so many huge mass shootings and at schools of all places. Hmm. I feel like if those don't move the needle, I really don't know what will. 
I was struck um, uh, that when the coronavirus crisis uh, began for all of us, Americans queued up to buy more guns and British people queued up to buy toilet rolls. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what that said about our two societies. Well, you must have been to the football <laughs> of the 1970s, Gavin, toilet rolls flying through the air, violent assault weapons. Finally, hands up if you're dying for a vape. The air might be full of beautiful watermelon aromas, but uh, on the old-fashioned cigarette front, it's been suggested that the smoking age should rise annually until reaching 21. Party-loving minister for whatever he feels like next, Michael Gove, has backed the idea too. Now, vaping could also become more widely recommended as an alternative to smoking tobacco, despite questions raised over the use of e-cigs and the suggestions that flavouring themselves should be restricted because they appeal to kids. Um, Hands up around the table and virtually who's ever smoked? I haven't because I'm a goody two-shoes and boring. I'm I'm boring I've never been... We're not a very good representative sample. I've never been a smoker. Never been a smoker, okay. Yeah, I have inhaled, you know, as Clinton would say. But yes, I'm going to guess, Arthur, with your globe trotting, that you may have had to possibly sit down over a pipe of some liquor other in certain parts of the world. I've done that, yes, in the Arab world, yes. I was going to ask if that counts. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. did you like it? No, no, you cough. Yeah. Makes you cough <laughs> really and all that sort of because it, it funny it's a bit like the vaping it's all sort of weird fruity flavors which mm. I find a bit weird. See, as a non-smoker of anything, I actually find the weird fruity flavors of people's vaping near me to be quite pleasant because <laughs> it's at least it doesn't smell like stinky old fags. The used to having you know make, all your clothes would be filthy and horrible yeah. if you'd been out. Yasmin, how about you? Yeah, I think like Arthur, um, my experience with uh, my limited experience with smoking is kind of limited to hookah or shisha or argilas. I think it's mm. uh, people probably know it um, as. And that, I mean, I weirdly see less as sort of a, a personal preference and more of a cultural thing. That's yeah. not a cop out or an attempt at one. Um, but Is it rude not to, basically? Uh, no, I think you can opt out. But I, I think what always made it seem less bad, because I knew that... It, it is bad for you. Like it's effectively for for the uninitiated uh, for the uninitiated. A hookah is effectively just like flavored tobacco in this mm. big pipe. So, um, but it's it's a sharing thing predominantly. You do it with friends. So you're kind of passing the hookah around. The little mm. I'm forgetting the term, but anyway, you're you're passing it around. You're sharing it, so you can't really hog it. And frankly, in my own experience, I can't really take too much of it mm. before it starts to make me feel a little dizzy. So, um, yeah, I was always quite. But I spent a couple of of summers in the Middle East. And I remember coming home with a very mini hookah. My mom was livid because um, she was like, you're going to get addicted. I'm like, I literally smoke this every day for two months because mm. they're in restaurants, they're in cafes, they're mm. they're ubiquitous. Um, and I didn't get addicted. I actually haven't touched the stuff in years. Does it just sit on the shelf now as a kind of objet d'art? I actually lost it uh. at a New Year's Eve party. Once. I think my friend, my one of my best friends still has it. So. She's well, keeping a hold of it for for the day that I need it. Fair enough. And uh, <laughs> therefore, I'm guessing that everybody around the table and virtually Gavin has not tried vaping either. Probably yeah. not. No, I haven't. I, I, my only memory of smoking was uh, working in a pub, which I did when I was a student and coming home. And, and the next morning, the smell from my clothes of the overnight smoke, because those were the days when you were still allowed to smoke in a pub in, in Ireland. And uh, yeah, I found it pretty, pretty disgusting. Vaping, I, like you, I don't really... Mind it. I'm, I'm in two minds. I mean, I understand that 
in the United States, uh, some of the health authorities still think it's a gateway to smoking cigarettes, whereas uh, Britain, I think, the BMA suggests it's a way of stopping smoking cigarettes and therefore it's less harmful, but it's not without its its downside, its harms as well. My favourite factoid about the smoking ban in Ireland was it led to a short boom in the upholstery business because without cigarette smoke in the pubs, Everybody, all the pub owners went, hang on, this place absolutely stinks. <laughs> it's like 100 years of spilt Guinness in here. It reeks. So everything had to get ripped out and replaced. Um, it also, and this is even less pleasant, um, it uh, certainly gave me a different perspective on the live music industry because I found out what uh, gigs actually smell like when people aren't smoking ciggies in them. And what it smells like, frankly, is um, men who've drunk a lot of beer breaking wind, sadly. Mm. That's what gigs smell like. Um, so there's this, this review into how to stop Britain's smoke aiming to get Britain tobacco-free by 2030. Recommended several moves. One was raising the smoking age uh, from 18 by a year every year so that teenagers who are now 16 will never actually catch up and will never be able to buy cigarettes. Um, good idea, Arthur? Well, uh, I consider myself a liberal, so in, instinctively I think, oh, that's a bit mad. But uh, I'm married to a public health doctor and and she she assures me that these sorts of things do actually work. And if you look at places where they make it very hard for people to smoke, uh, they don't uh, all start smoking in speakeasies or, you know, or, or sort of, you know, create a gang, gang culture. It just it just sort of starts to die out. I, now that I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it just means that people then take more drugs or, or drink more alcohol. But it, it does seem that. Uh, you can make people do less smoking if you make it hard for them. Or possibly, uh, you know, head round to areas not far from this studio here in uh, London's Holloway, not quite the glamorous Islington people might think, where you can pick up some dodgy ciggies <laughs> with uh, probably full of titanium and radium and all kinds, uh, you know, Albanian benches and hedges and so on yes. and so forth. So there is, the, there is that danger. Yasmin, are you surprised at the smoking culture in Britain? You know, loads of smoking areas outside pubs and stuff. No, to be honest, I mean, I... Prior to moving to London, I did, in a very cliched American student way, study abroad in Paris, which was, I think, the worst (laughs) in terms of, yeah, I mean, it was just like, as someone who didn't smoke and, and, you know, grew up in an Arab family, so invariably was familiar with the smell of cigarettes. But um, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe that's not an Arab thing. I don't know. Sorry. Maybe you can Just from my experience. It is. Okay. Anyway. Um, But um, yeah, so I found it comparatively to be pretty mellow. um, Mm. And and I think the fact that obviously you can't smoke in pubs and the the way you used to also makes that um, pretty easygoing. However, I mean, but there are other things. I mean, I know that this isn't quite smoking, but I've seen people like inhaling those like weird helium things. Do you know what I'm oh, talking yeah, about? Oh yeah, doing balloons, laughing that's, gas. Yeah, that's a different kettle of fish. That yeah, is. sorry, that's maybe different. But anyway, yeah. So that was the only thing that really shocked me. But other than that, I mean, it seems kind of comparable to my own U.S. experience in that, particularly in big cities where there's like large international populations, mm. you're going to have some communities that smoke a bit more than others. But it never seemed quite as obvious here as yeah. it has in other places. Apparently the city of Los Angeles has banned flavoured vapes on the idea that it is a kind of a, a gateway. And uh, Ian Dunce of our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now? got very irate about this. Banning vape flavours would be obscene, given that they all have flavour. It would be tantamount to banning vaping, which I suppose is true. Yeah. You know, Would you like some flavourless bubblegum? Gavin, I mean, one of the other aspects of this rather interesting review was the idea that there ought to be a further clampdown on what they call the aesthetic of cigarettes to make them less appealing, which seems like a roundabout way of saying, can you make smoking less cool? (laughs) 
to to return to a previous comment of yours, that's rather like clamping down on the aesthetics of farting, isn't it? I mean, I don't quite, I don't, I don't quite get it. I mean, one of the things you could do, I mean, it wouldn't solve the dodgy dodgy cigarettes problem, but you could just continue to increase the tax on it beyond the rate of inflation and make it so expensive. Because I'm kind of amazed at uh, the price of cigarettes when I go into buy petrol so the two things amaze me and i i have to buy the petrol i don't have to buy the cigarettes i don't i don't know i mean it is it surely is not cool anymore is it if it ever was it's surely not fashionable anymore well i don't know well it's like the, good, you know what what is cool and, and who even cares about being cool it's, it's the kind of thing that you know with the appeal of retro stuff you know black and white pictures of james dean and great old actors with a ciggy hanging off their lip it's clearly believed that this has power but then cigarette boxes now have graphic images of what the cigs will do to you <laughs> the kind of thing that would only otherwise have appeared on rotten.com and you know a packet of cigarettes cost i don't know how much these days like 12 quid i don't know I don't even know. How would I know? It's like you've raised all the barriers so high that anybody who wants to smoke is clearly going to they, – they, they, you've reached the hardcore of the highly determined, I would have thought. Yeah, well, I, th- I think – didn't the Marlborough man die of cancer? Isn't that one of the <laughs> – yeah. well, I kind of – that would have put me yeah, off. I don't know about and yet, it. <laughs> and yet it didn't put anybody else off somehow for some strange reason. So finally then – if we don't smoke, and we all don't, what do we do instead when we're stressed to the eyeballs? Arthur, you've been in stressful situations. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I'm quite fond of uh, alcoholic drinks. So. <laughs> Can't do that on a battlefield, Arthur. Can't do that in the middle of an assignment. The specific thing, uh, smoking's interesting because it's, a, it's, it's considered acceptable to carry out that activity sort of during a working day. Mm. I suppose drinking coffee is a bit like that. Yeah. I don't think it helps, but I drink a lot of coffee. I gravely object to the cigarette break because of all the hours, extra hours I've worked, extra months and years probably. Well, but, time for a cigarette break. I don't get one. But also, back in the day when, when there were more smokers, it was always the people who smoked who knew everything because the cigarette break was this incredible intelligence sort of debrief <laughs> mm. uh, of sort of people from different parts of the office sharing gossip. I should have got a fake ciggy one that lit up yeah. at the end, ones, the electronic ones. How about, how about you, Yasmin? What's your de-stressor? It's not coffee because, unfortunately, I just start shaking if I drink too much of it, unfortunately. Um, I go for a walk. I mean, to the extent I can. Mostly I just despair. But, like, I've never not gone on a walk, even if it was just, like, a 20-minute one and Mm. not felt a little bit better. There's that TikTok trend. I don't know if people have seen it. It's like going on a walk for my stupid mental health. Like, it does. It works. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I try try to do that more. How about you, Gavin? Well, I I sometimes go for a walk, but I I live mostly in the Kent coast, so I jump in the sea, as I did earlier today, which is uh, uh, sometimes for for less than 30 seconds and uh, involves more swearing than swimming. (laughs) But but I do find it de-stresses me, perhaps because I fear for my life or think I'm having a heart attack and then get out. But I definitely feel a lot better and a lot more relaxed when I get out. You need to be careful or (laughs) Nigel Farage will try and drive you back to France. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker podcast, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What in the worlds of the arts, entertainment, fiction, TV, music and or miscellaneous is giving our panel respite from the horrible world of politics? Arthur, I'm going to start with you. Uh, so I've been enjoying a, a novel originally written in French, but I've been lazy. I'm reading it in English. Uh, it's got a slightly strange title, which is H-H-H-H. That's the letter four times, letter H four times, because that's the initial of a, a German phrase, which is Himmler's Hern heist Heidrich, which means that uh, Himmler's brain is called Heidrich. And this is all about <laughs> um, uh, ghastly uh, sort of SS people um, uh, during World War II and, and a rather heroic but ultimately 
sort of doomed operation to to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich, who's often seen as the sort of brains behind uh, the Holocaust. Um, but it's a very intriguing novel. It's slightly surreal, a bit sort of postmodern and, and uh, uh, really engaging. The great band British Sea Power wrote a song about the attempt to assassinate Heydrich called It'll Be a Lovely Day Tomorrow. Oh, I will, I'll interesting link. Yeah. Pop music facts we've got. Um, Yasmin, how about you? This is going to sound comparatively ridiculous. Um, it's that time of year again. Naturally, mm-hmm. I am watching Love Island because <laughs> it is chewing gum for the eyes. I'm already like three episodes behind, so maybe I'm not actually watching it. I'm a little stressed You're now that I'm falling behind. <laughs> Clearly not. Um, but no, it's just every year this is just... I just find that it... <laughs> It gives me something to talk about with, like, a wide variety of people, and it just, like, kind of consumes the next two months. So that's what I'm doing. When you said, it's that time of year again, you put the fear of God into me. I was like, oh, God, what is it? What have I missed? What important thing? And then Nothing said, important, oh, that's for God. sure. No offense It's to just Love, Love Island. Island. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Gavin, I presume you're, like, absolutely up to your neck in Love Island. No, not at the moment. No, I'm, I, I tell you what, I am up, up to my neck in, which is um, I'm, I'm doing some judging for uh, Irish documentaries, uh, Irish made documentaries. And I've just seen one which is called Pure Grit. And it's about a woman in the Shoshone Reservation of um, Wyoming uh, who is a horse rider and she does horse racing, but it's bareback horse racing. And it is just looks like the most mental sport you've ever seen. I mean, if you can imagine any kind of horse racing would scare me, but this is people riding with just a, a rope. I think it would be, I, I, I don't go on horses, so I don't know. And she is an amazing woman. I, I just thought this was uh, quite one of the most fascinating documentaries I've ever seen, especially since it's about modern America now, but not the America you see on the TV news. It's the, being in Wyoming itself is just like an exotic country. Well, my escape route is a fantastic thing on Sky called Barry. Barry is back. This fantastic series in which Bill Hader, which you you may know um, from uh, Saturday Night Live, plays a hitman who's sent on a job in Los Angeles to kill someone. And the victim is in an acting class and Barry gets the acting book and decides he doesn't want to be a hitman anymore. He wants to act. <laughs> and it sounds absurd, but it's actually extremely kind of, um, you know, quite tender, actually. Bill Hader plays this very lost figure. He's clearly traumatised by his experiences in the military. Henry Winkler is in it, playing an acting coach. And Henry Winkler thinks it's the best thing he's ever done, and I agree with him. The world of interlocking gangs and criminal interests... And the kind of um, sharp contrast with the world of all these aspiring actors, which of course Los Angeles is full of, everybody taking their own little private concerns terribly, terribly seriously, while, you know, in the next scene you see Barry murdering people. It is so funny. It is so clever. Series 3 has just started on Sky. I recommend it very highly. Start with Series 1. You'll be You'll be absolutely delighted that you did. And that's the end of the Bunker Pal Show for this week. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with the Bunker Daily that we recorded a couple of years ago uh, with Dom Phillips so that you can hear what he had to say about Brazil and Bolsonaro, but most importantly, so that you can hear his voice and his warmth and his passion for Brazil and so that you can remember him with us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Here's the traditional shouts to our Patreon backers. Hello and thanks for your support to Tamsin, Thomas Sterling and Matt Green. Big hello from me to Anita Pierce, M. Reitz and Robert Allen. 
Thanks for your support to Kimberly Salmasi. And finally, best wishes from me to Kat Dukas, Paul Rooks and Andrew Thatcher. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Esler, Yasmin Saran and Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers with Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,